There are two undeniable characteristics of a terrorist state, killing and kidnapping children. Russia does both. Even on International Children's Day, Russia bombs killed a child in Kyiv. Before invading, Russia prepared a disinformation campaign to justify kidnapping and deporting Ukrainian children to Russia. This says a lot about what this war is actually about. This is genocide, according to Article 2E of the 1948 Genocide Convention, and it's why the West needs to arm Ukraine to win the war and bring prosecutions against the war criminals. Ukraine needs to have the military power and ability to project power enough to enable it to bring back all its kidnapped children from the occupying state. Welcome to the Silicon Curtain podcast. If you enjoy the material we create, then please like and subscribe to help find other fantastic speakers. And of course, do please consider becoming a patron. Yuri Sak is an advisor to the Minister of Defense of Ukraine. He is also a partner at strategic communications firm CFC Big Ideas. He has a master's degree in international law and legal studies from the Ukrainian Institute of International Affairs and a study and research diploma in public international law from the University of Oxford. Well, Yuri, thank you for joining me, and especially after an intense night of missile and drone attacks in Kiev. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. It's an honour and a pleasure. Well, let's jump into probably what is one of the most important topics and something you have written a lot about and done interviews about, and that is the F-16s. Now, you've been advocating for these to be delivered to Ukraine uh, right from the start of the conflict. I think you have realised the absolute importance of F-16s in victory. So could you describe to me, what is it that Ukraine needs? And obviously you needed it a long time ago, but when are these finally going to arrive? Jonathan, let's start by going back to February 24th of 2022, which is when this large invasion, uh, large scale invasion began. And we were then at a point where we knew that our air force is uh, based on old Soviet-era-style mix and Suhoi um, fighter jets. And uh, we knew that in order to be able to resist this enemy and in order to be able to win and in order to be able to long-term ensure the security of the European continent, because this is something we stress all the time, we are now fighting on the Ukrainian soil, but not just for the Ukraine's future. We're fighting for all of our futures. And we knew that we will have to transform our armed forces towards or in line with Western standards, in line with NATO standards. And, you know, relying um, on old Soviet style mix. Uh, but, you know, I speak to our Ukrainian pilots uh, who are active duty pilots who uh, go on sorties every day. Uh, so we speak regularly and they tell me that you know, it feels like almost going on a suicide mission when you are in an old Soviet style MiG uh, and you are standing up against even Russian MiGs. Because, you know, if you compare, you would think that these are the same platforms, right? MiG-29 on our side, MiG-29 on their side. But they have um, they have refurbished their uh, aircraft. You know, they have equipped them with uh, more modern avionics, with uh, far-ranging um radars uh, with better missiles 
So uh, we knew from, from the start, from our pilots who, as you remember, during the first days of the war, uh, they, they were doing legendary work. There were even, uh, you know, uh, urban myths being created about the ghosts of Kiev who were like shooting down these missiles and who were actually denying Russians uh, air superiority um, in the skies above Kiev and above other uh, Ukrainian cities. So our pilots did absolutely heroic and amazing job during the first weeks of this war, using and relying on what they had. But, you know, as soon as we were able to start these conversations, they were telling us that, listen, this we will not last like that for long. So let's start talking to our allies about upgrading our fleet, uh, upgrading our air force. And of course, we uh, we were then at a point where our allies were reluctant even to provide us with heavy artillery, let alone fighter jets. You know, we've come a long way since then. Uh, but in April 2022, when we said, for example, to our allies that we need multi-launch rocket systems, they said it's impossible because it will lead to escalation. It will lead to the nuclear uh, obliteration uh, by, uh, you know, uh, nuclear powers of each other because Russia will uh, strike first. So that's where we were when the discussion about F-16s began. We were like just dreaming about them. And actually, we have a, uh, a little cast model of F-16, uh, which we made in, uh, if I'm not mistaken, end of April. And it's 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 a Ukrainian it's it's a, a model of F sixteen uh, done in the Ukrainian colors, right? So it looks like a Ukrainian F sixteen, and on the little pedestal, uh, I'll actually send you a photograph of this uh, thing, and you can share it with your listeners uh, on your social media. There is a saying: "I have a dream." So we began with this dream of improving our air capabilities by receiving modern fighter jets. Then there was a long discussion of what kind of platforms. At some point, there was talk about the A-10s from the US, you know, because A-10s are, uh, they're not fighter jets, they are um, platforms that are used to destroy ground forces of the enemy. They did uh, outstanding job in, for example, in uh, Operation Desert Storm. But our pilots, you know, when that talk began, they told us that, look, A-10s are really powerful when it comes to their weaponry, but they are slow and they are easily destroyed by the enemy's air defense. So in order to use A-10s, you need to suppress the enemy's air defenses first, because otherwise you will just be, uh, they will be shot down on their first sorties. So an expert group, not even one expert, a couple of expert groups were created uh early summer 2022 and the discussion internal discussion began so what kind of aircraft do we need you know what kind of military objectives uh, are our air force guys facing and what kind of aircraft will be most suitable and i will fast forward now to where we are at the moment and uh, the decision was reached that of course f16s are the most versatile multi-role platform that allows uh, you know, it's a, like a three-pronged military objective. So it allows to deal with um, uh, with the enemy's uh, air power in the air. It allows it. It's it allows because it has sufficient weapons to provide cover for the ground forces, and it allows, of course, to deal with the 
cruise missiles with the drones, and which means it complements the air defense system of a country, Ukraine in our instance. So that's, you know, and then the president Zelensky went to the United Kingdom and delivered his famous freedom, uh, wings of freedom speech in the UK parliament. And uh, then all of us who are on the communications side, we started uh, talking about this uh, very, very actively. And here we are now uh, from being a dream F-16s, have almost become a reality now because the training will begin soon. We have a, a strong coalition of our partners in Europe and now even in the US is on board uh, who have expressed commitment to, you know, continue with this program, to continue with the fighter jet coalition, train our pilots, provide us with F-16s. And from where we see it, like we train very fast on everything, right? Uh, and our pilots are really capable and they have so much uh, combat experience, battle experience, that they the training program for our pilots can be reduced uh, if you compare it with, you know, with the standard kind of timeline of training a pilot. Uh, but it, of course, it's still not uh, a matter of weeks. It's a matter of a couple of months. But if, if things begin to happen quick now, if they're streamlined on all ends, uh, in autumn, late September, early October, we could see first F-16s in the Ukrainian skies protecting our cities and our people. And I would like to say another very important thing is we, in addition to you know being in a war uh, on the battlefield, in a kinetic war, the so-called kinetic war, so we're also fighting a war of narratives. Now, Russia's main narrative has been Ukraine will never win this war. It is impossible for a country of the size of Ukraine, the country which is like smaller in every different aspect, to beat a country like Russia. Now, in order for this narrative, for this Russian narrative, and trust me, it does have sympathy in some parts of the world. Like Global South is fully kind of accepting uh this narrative that you know how can i i gave i give interviews every day yesterday i spoke with al jazeera with al gad with uh, al arabia and they all have this question I and mean, what they ask us what makes you so confident that you can win this war so we understand that they are very receptive to that russian narrative so when our allies tell us that they will send us f-16s that narrative suffers and is damaged almost irreparably because uh you know if you have a plot of land and somebody tells you i'm going to put up a tent there uh, and you're trying to sell that uh, plot of land to somebody else to a client so you tell the client listen they've just put up a tent it's a temporary thing so that tent will be blown away by wind or whatever uh, and and i will be able to sell you that land but if that person instead of a tent is telling you that i will build you know, a full-blown brick house on this plot of land, then your client, in this case, for example, Global South is, is saying Russia. So you were telling us that the West will get tired. You were telling us that this support will wane and dwindle and decrease. But look, they've now just said that they will give Ukraine F-16s. That's a long-term commitment. That means that at least for another 12 months, they will stand with Ukraine. And, and that's when we begin to win the war of narratives as well. So the mission that the F-16s will play is twofold. They will 
considerably improve our Air Force capability, but they will also help us defeat that malign narrative, according to which, you know, according to which the West, by supporting Ukraine, is only prolonging Ukraine's suffering because the end game, the end result is inevitable. Ukraine will uh, lose. No, we know for now, you know, I was at a conference just uh, actually two days ago, and I began by saying that nobody, not in Kiev, not beyond, knows when this war will end. But almost everybody by now understands and knows very well how it will end. It will end with Ukraine's victory on the battlefield. It will end with the setting up of an international tribunal to try war criminals from the Kremlin. And it will end in the long process of Russia paying reparations to Ukraine. And after that, there will come healing and the world will be safe again. And there's so many questions that come out of that. But these narratives, these propaganda narratives, I mean, I even hear journalists on Times Radio, which I know you've appeared on. I hear journalists on the BBC continue to ask that question. Well, Ukraine's doing well. You know, we are Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. But they cannot win against a larger power. These narratives ignore history. You know, um, the USSR was beaten in Afghanistan. The US was beaten in Afghanistan and Vietnam. Uh, the Soviet Union was beaten by tiny Finland. There are plenty of examples, even of the players we're talking about here, that have been comprehensively pushed back by small, determined nations. Um, and it has to be said, nations that have a more sophisticated sense of self and identity and are willing to fight for that. And of course, Ukraine fits into that category. Yeah. Um, now, pilots... You mentioned that, you know, flying in the, the MiGs and Sukhois, it feels like a suicide mission. But pilots are not like uh, infantry. You can train infantry up in, in a number of months. Um, people potentially with no background uh, in the military at all can still get trained up. But pilots, you know, you may be able to get them onto F-16s in, in the space of a couple of months. But that is off the basis of years of training uh, in, uh, you know, various machines tactics and so on you cannot afford to lose pilots because within the window the victory needs to be achieved it's very difficult to train up new pilots isn't it from scratch well yes but you know we have um, sufficient number of pilots for the amount of aircraft that we are requesting we have pilots and and doubles uh, so uh, there is sufficient number of those who have been trained because you know for for a while there was it was a very interesting situation so we 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 have the uh, pilot schools if you like and we have lots of pilots who were trained to be pilots but the amount of aircraft uh, was not sufficient so uh, we have this disproportion right so we have more pilots than we have aircraft and i know from our pilots then you know like this is how it is like sometimes you know uh, there are four pilots and and they are sitting there in line waiting for their turn uh, to go on a sortie simply because you know there's insufficient number of aircraft uh, and these are all already in ukraine already well trained and all they will need to be trained in is is how to use uh, you know how to use uh, for example f16s when it comes to weaponry weapon systems and how to use um 
combined armed operations you know how how do they interact with other units on the ground with air how, so the but when it comes to the aerial tactics of aerial fights you know uh when it comes to uh, the like the basics of of of, of the um pilot training uh, they are all uh, prepared that's one thing but of course there's probably we can say another category of pilots the future pilots now with those we we can take time and you know so we need to separate the two groups the immediate group and the kind of mid-term long-term group uh, of pilots who need to be trained so, so and i think the programs will have to be um adapted you know so the, the first group uh, like for example this is an interesting discussion i had with one of our pilots he said to me when we were discussing how much time uh, will it be necessary for them to train and uh, he tells me that look ordinarily in any uh, pilot school anywhere in the world uh, the training program consists of certain blocks so uh, block number one is uh, just for example is uh, air to ground uh, engagement right so they, they they spend like say three months just learning how to do that type of mission block number two is when they focus uh, solely on air to air missions right block number three is when they focus on uh engaging with uh, aerial objects and cruise missiles and stuff like that so what my pilots uh, our pilots are telling is that in our case to save time we can select this group of pilots who will be trained just to do the air uh, to air missions uh, this group of pilots that will undergo the training only uh, for ground operations covering uh, missions and another group, for, do you understand? So we we can immediately reduce the time threefold. Uh, of course, in the future, they will all have to be trained to become universal. But at the same time, to save time and to get these pilots on F-16s and quickly into the air uh, as soon as possible, uh, this can be done that way as well. Now, at the moment, uh, it is speculated that we're seeing shaping operations uh, ahead of the sort of spring-summer offensive. Um, and without asking you to sort of confirm or deny that, um, will the delivery of F-16s in some way sort of delay the scaling up uh, of uh, the counter-offensive? Are you going to have to wait for the delivery of this uh, equipment in order to really push the Russians back? Or are there things that can be achieved now? And when we see very effective sort of psychological operations will come on in a minute, which is the drone attacks. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's important for Ukraine to have visible victories to keep allies on side as well. Well, absolutely. And this is why we understand very well uh, that, uh, you know, we will not wait for the F-16s to arrive. Uh, and at the same time, we understand that they, when they will arrive, they will of course, have an impact. Uh, but they, you know, F-16s are not a silver bullet, so that you understand. And we are conscious of that. You know, we we talk about them all the time, but at the same time, it, it's not a magic wand that, you know, once we have it in our hands, will end the war. Uh, but it will, an important elements within our kind of armed forces and, and uh, within our transformation uh, towards NATO standards. So that's one thing, right? Uh, the counteroffensive uh, or the offensive, because you know uh, we're now in uh, in June, uh, and of course, you know, uh, that's probably the most frequently asked questions. When you know when is this going to begin? Now, uh, and we understand how 
important is for allies to see their assistance work on the battlefield and work successfully. At the same time, our priority concern is always the life of our personnel. So uh, every military operations is planned with this consideration in mind primarily, right? How do we achieve maximum result with minimum losses? Because it is a war and we still incur losses, but by fighting a smart war, we minimize our losses. So there have been a couple of factors which which were objective, like weather conditions, right? So a counteroffensive or offensive operations, they cannot actually be carried out successfully if it's muddy, if 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 you're not uh, able to use the tracks-based uh, equipment, like tanks, armored vehicles, uh, uh, personnel carriers, and stuff like that, right? So that was uh, one thing. Then. Um, so we're not, it's not a shock, you know, sometimes it almost feels like uh, counteroffensive is a show that has been announced to the Western audiences and everybody bought tickets and now everybody's sitting in the audience with their popcorn and uh, getting a bit frustrated that it's been such a long time that, you know, we've purchased tickets, give us the show, where is it? It's not like that. We understand that, but we we are fighting a war of survival. We are not in a show business right uh so from this perspective we trust our military command that so far they've been you know every decision that they've made uh, has proven with hindsight you know look at Kharkiv counter offensive look at how Kherson was liberated they of course there have been certain things that haven't worked uh, according to plan but by and large you know the big things have always done been done properly and this is how we're confident it will happen this time as well um, our president a few days ago said that the time has been set now, so uh, we'll just have to be a little bit more patient and, and uh, wait for, 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 for the next steps of the Ukrainian armed forces. And this is why the so-called psychological operations are, I think, so intelligent and so effective. Everyone's sitting here with their popcorn, waiting for those sort of TV moments. That's not just the Western media. Uh, I think in Russia, they are also waiting to see that, um, even though they may expect a different outcome from it. And even though Ukraine denies any in, uh, involvement in these, we see uh, insurgent attacks uh, in Belgorod and uh, Kursk region and uh, you know a variety of villages uh, along the border of uh, Russian um, uh, units uh, so-called Russian opposition, um, you know, having incursions deep into Russia. Um, we also see the drone attack on the Kremlin, which again, I realize, you know, your government denies, um, and the uh, the drone attack on Moscow. Now, these things are extraordinarily effective. They fulfill that box of popcorn moments, giving people extraordinary entertainment, but also they seem to have a deep psychological impact on the Russian public and on the Russian elite in a way that nothing in this war yet has actually penetrated through. Suddenly for Russians, this war is something that's not just on their TV screens. It's something that is flying over their heads in reality. Well, yes, indeed. And, uh, you know, uh, I've already said that it's, uh, in addition to being a war on the battlefield, uh, it's a war of narratives. It's a war of... Uh, um, of determinations. Now we have on the battlefield, we have been able to degrade the uh, Russian army severely. They, you know, they've uh, suffered huge 
losses. You know, on a daily basis right now, they're suffering on average 500 people are killed in action. So 500 soldiers, right? Uh, we have seen in the last couple of days that even that's terrorists... daily, is it? That's a daily total. Daily. That's a daily uh, result, you know. So by now, um, I think very soon we will reach the uh, figure 210,000 210, Russian soldiers killed in Ukraine on the battlefield. Uh, so for the armed forces, this is, for the Russian armed forces, this is something that, uh, and we get the intercepts of their calls to their wives and their friends, and we understand that they are very, very demoralized by, you know, because essentially this is how it works. So the the, the new batch of uh, freshly mobilized and freshly trained uh, recruits arrive on the battlefield and they are uh, sent to these positions, but they are already wave number three. And as they go to the battlefield, they see that the first two waves didn't make it back. And they see them lying in trenches, dead. And that message spreads. So there is a high degree of um demoralization within the ranks of the russian army because they see that you know they cannot be lied to unlike russians inside russia these guys they see death every day on the battlefield so they don't, they're not buying that propaganda uh that is fed to the russians through their federal tv channels now when it comes to the actual russians inside russia you know honestly we thought that we thought that well, first, like I said, we thought that when ordinary Russians, when they see that their regime, their terrorist regime is destroying Ukrainian cities, killing Ukrainian children, raping Ukraine, so it's turning into uh, pretty much an, a, a Nazi regime and committing all the same types of atrocities. You know, we, we harbored this hope that this will be a wake-up call for ordinary Russians and they will pour out into the streets and they will start protesting, you know, stop the war, stop the aggression. Now, this didn't happen. Uh, and that's another topic for, I think, many PhDs in human psychology that will have to be examined and studied in the future. But when that didn't happen, we thought, well, okay, so that didn't work. Now, we will start killing Russians en masse. Uh, Russian soldiers. So when they hear the figures, when they realize how many of their countrymen are being killed on a daily basis, that will make them, you know, realize that something's not going right and they have to somehow begin to protest inside Russia. Now that didn't work because, you know, we see that these figures, you know, we're living in the era of internet. It's very difficult to hide information. So that information makes it through different channels to the Russian information space. But nothing happens. So what is happening right now is the next level, which is, you know, from where we see it, uh, Russian citizens who some of them actually have been members of the International Legion here fighting uh, with Ukraine against Russia. So they have now splintered off and they have decided why? Because they see the success of the Ukrainian armed forces on the battlefield. They can see that Russia can be beaten, you know, like, so for now, or rather by now, it is apparent for them that a rebellion, an uprising 
is not a suicide mission. If you do it smart, you can achieve success. So our success on the battlefield inspires and encourages them, gives them confidence that, you know, Russia is a paper tiger. It's, it's, it's not what it wants everybody to believe it is. And that's why they've become more active. And that's why we see drones in Moscow. That's why we see uh, military operations in uh, Belgorod. Uh, and this is pretty much a beginning. This is their own words. You know, I'm just reciting what they've been saying for the last couple of weeks uh, openly. It's the beginning of the civil war in Russia. And so uh, as far as we are concerned, you know, as long as it helps Ukraine end the war if this way or the other, uh, it works for us. And of course, the, the other effect of it, we'll come to the psychological effect in a minute, because I think that is incredibly interesting. Um, but the other effect, of course, is that you've talked about Ukrainian operations having as their primary objective preservation of Ukrainian life with the maximum impact possible. Um, well, if these operations on Russian soil scale up, and they continue to have the kind of plausible deniability which you're able to do. I mean, you're taking the Russian tactic of little green men and you're turning it into, into little blue and yellow men um, equally effectively, in fact, more effectively than, than the Russians seem to be able to do. Well, Jonathan, I would like to, I, I would like to, uh, sorry for interrupting, but mm. I would like to tell you that like uh, these guys, uh, the, uh, what are they called? The, uh, uh, volunteers, Russian volunteers call and, and the liberation, uh, liberty uh, battalion, I forget the exact name. They are Russian citizens, they are Russian partisans. They are not, uh, they are not little green men because little green men in Crimea, they were actually Russian regular armed forces who were dressed uh, and they just took off their insignia and, you know, uh, Russian leadership was very coy and, and kind of uh, funny about this, right? So these are little green men. We don't know who they are. And they got their uh, weapons in, in, in the military store, ordinary military store. So this this is not the, the exact same situation because these guys, they are capturing, for example, weapons. Where do they get the weapons? They capture them from Russians. You know, the, the unfortunate cases sometimes are that, and we've had them uh, during the last week. Uh, so... In some cases, Russians have captured some of our equipment, and then these guys captured it from Russians. So technically, the Western supply of weapons end up in Russia. And that's something that you know the Western partners uh, don't like very much. But look, this is not our responsibility because you know it's a war. So some of the equipment that we receive gets captured on the battlefield uh, for objective reasons. But I was and then they use it for propaganda, of course. You know, I we saw a propaganda shot earlier in the week, clearly staged with these weapons and vehicles, but they weren't really in a kind of natural pose. Uh, that equipment yeah. had been used for a propaganda shot. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I just wanted to stress that this is, yes. this is not Ukrainian armed forces dressed as Russian partisans. These are Russian partisans. And that's they are why definitely, yeah. Problem. Yeah. I mean, anyone who speaks Russian and listens to them talking... Uh, you know, they're you know the have the, they have the manner of Russians. They have the Russian language. They don't have uh, Ukrainian accents in any way. And, and, and even the way they yeah. stand, they move, articulate. They are clearly uh, Russians. But the effect, however, 
is very beneficial to Ukraine. And that is the more of these uh, insurgency operations that take place, um, the preservation of Ukrainian equipment and lives when the counteroffensive does come uh, will be so much greater. Well, absolutely, because one practical outcome of these operations by these partisans is that Russian military leadership has to now think about how to secure borders, you know, where they are now easily penetrated by these partisans. And they have to, I assume, relocate certain, you know, groups, battalions uh, to calm down the Russians who are now beginning to question, you know, because the way it works with the Russians, right, they, they have signed the hypothetical uh, social agreement with the regime. They said, okay, we give up our freedoms, you can have them, but in return, you give us stability and you give us protection. So at the moment, the way it looks, uh, the Kremlin is failing to deliver on their part of the agreement. So they, they, they've got the liberties, but they are unable to provide protection and security. So uh, this is beginning to cause, you know, this is beginning to at least to make Russians think, you know, so what is happening? What's happening with our deal? And this means that Russians will have to refocus certain their activities. And of course, the more they're focused on what happens inside Russia, the less uh, capabilities they have on the front lines, uh, the better it is for us. And there's another interesting effect. And I think this is going to be the last area because I think it's a very stark contrast between Russian mentality and Ukrainian. So when Butcher and Erpin uh, were attacked and liberated, I heard nothing but sympathy from other Ukrainians. Even though these are wealthy suburbs of Kiev, everybody is completely sympathetic to the victims in these in these areas. Whereas the drone attack is on a region of Moscow called Rublyovka, where the military elite, the administrative elite live. And what you now have is Solovyov berating people, saying, well, have some sympathy for these. These are Russians. These are our people. And you have Zed patriots. You have so-called liberals. You have people celebrating the bombing of their own elites. What it reveals is they loathe each other. They loathe the people that rule them. They loathe the vertical architecture of uh, apparatchiks who steal all their money. Um, and this operation, denied by Ukraine, has very effectively shown the deep divisions within Russian society. It's even questioned whether there is such a thing as Russian society at all. So let's, uh, I mean, that's a very interesting point that you're bringing up now, because uh, let's go back to history. And we've said it at the beginning of our conversation today, that the whole, this, this whole aggression, this whole war, um, and not just the one that started in February 2022, but 2014, essentially, right, with the illegal annexation of Crimea, it is based on a fake version of history, but that fake version of history kind of triggers in the mind of ordinary Russians, triggers this, I have to fight for Mother Russia because Mother Russia is under threat, and it's actually honorable to die for Mother Russia because Mother Russia gave me everything, you know, everything I have, I owe to Mother Russia. So the Kremlin's kind of psychological objective was to put the Russian people into this second world war or the great patriotic war 
mindset. What is happening right now is that Russian mindset, having stayed in that mindset for a little while, is now traveling back in time in history and moving to the revolution, 1917 revolution mind frame, where they, look, Russians have historically hated their elites. They have had a number of revolutions. They have killed the Tsar, the whole family. They've shot them and they've poured acid over them so that their remains will not be identified. So this, I think, you know, Russian regime is turning into the evil, which is beginning to be recognizable even by its own people. And it's interesting to see how Russians will, and, you know, as far as we're concerned, we hope it will happen sooner rather than later. But from the great patriotic mindset, they will move towards let's fight against that Tsar mindset. And this will, of course, help us win this war faster because the more they are uh, having to deal with this internally, you know, the faster we will be able to kick them out of our land. And that's my last question here, because we focused on victory. We focused on how to achieve victory. But there are other reasons why victory is absolutely essential. One of those is, of course, to return the kidnapped Ukrainian children, of which there are supposedly around 12,000 still unaccounted for. Uh, and also, mines are now turning to reconstruction, uh, to Ukraine being a key part of NATO in the EU. That means victory is almost a prerequisite, I think, for those things to happen. Uh, but also, mines are now turning to um, things like a sort of Nuremberg trial, a tribunal for war criminals, victory, all these things that must follow on are all dependent in a way on a decisive Ukrainian victory. Well, absolutely. And um, as an international community, we have been already in a situation where we have said never again. We have been in a situation where we were able to come together and set up, you refer to it, the Neurobank Tribunal, and bring to account those responsible for these atrocities. Yet after that, we, 50 years on, we had the special tribunal for the crimes committed in former Yugoslavia. We had as an international community to, to set up a similar special tribunal for the genocide in Rwanda. So while we definitely are committed and we will insist and we will succeed in creating the international tribunal for prosecuting war crimes committed by the Russian regime in Ukraine, it almost seems like as humanity, we're not learning from history. So we will, but at the same time, we know all very well that an evil unpunished comes back and strikes back. This is exactly why we said that, look, in 2014, when Russia illegally annexed Crimea, this was already a grave violation of the UN Charter. This was a crime that should have then triggered a very, very strong response from the international community. This was a moment when the international community already was facing a challenge. You know, are we going to uphold the rules-based order or are we going to turn a blind eye and just stand by and watch what happens next. 
we saw that that strategy didn't work appeasing the aggressor or trying to ignore or turning a blind eye to these uh, grave violations of international law they resulted in a much larger tragedy which is what we're dealing with right now so we are you know there is a group already of over 30 countries who have made a commitment to uh, set up this international tribunal it still is a question you know what kind of exactly what kind of tribunal it will have to be because you know for example there is an international criminal court in rome but you know for that court to actually uh, deal with even the crime of aggression that russia has committed uh countries have to be signatories, right? The jurisdiction of that court is limited because it's a treaty-based court, right? That's the difference between international courts and the ones uh, that we have uh, uh, in our domestic jurisdictions. But a special tribunal, uh, if and when it is set up, will pro most probably have uh, wider jurisdiction and, and more powers. So, of course, this will have to be part of the reconstruction and uh, post-war uh, rebuilding effort. And, you know, we are doing everything we can uh, already to make sure that, you know, when the time comes, we're ready. We're collecting evidence. We are uh, documenting all the atrocities. You know, there are certain parts of Ukraine, of course, where we don't have access yet. Like, for example, Mariupol. There are mass graves in Mariupol, and these will also have to be uh, dealt with by an international tribunal, you know, but we don't have access to those. That's why, you know, when we liberate them, I think we will be in for another, uh, I'm, I'm afraid, shock, because, you know, there are so many more butchers ahead of us that we will discover and we will have to deal with. But that's the only possible path that we can walk on, the path of justice, because in addition to beating the enemy on the battlefield, justice is something that we expect, justice is something that our allies expect. You know, we need to, again, set a precedent that will, for at least foreseeable future, allow us as an international community to live in peace and stability. And of course, Russia must not be allowed back into the international community, allowed to trade as it did previously, until these tribunals will fulfill their mission and the criminals have been handed over. Well, the work you're doing is incredible. I know you have to to dash off now. Um, it's been a huge privilege speaking to you. Um, obviously, many people watching this channel uh, are hoping for a victory and are sort of, you know, with you on that uh, and also agitating for these F-16s to be delivered uh, faster as well. Um, but Yuri, I wanted to say thank you so much. And of course, Slava Ukraini. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. And before I switch off, I would like to, of course, uh, express our endless gratitude uh, to the people of the United Kingdom, to the government of the United Kingdom, to the Minister of Defense, uh, um, Ben Wallace of the United Kingdom, because quite honestly, we are so we, we were surprised and we continue to be so encouraged by the amount of support that we receive from the united kingdom and we're not just talking about the you know number of ammunitions or weapons or tanks challenger tanks we are talking about the way the british people feel about this war because and i think that there's a very good reason for that because if we again go back in history and we see how britain was a decisive force when it came to defeating the nazi regime in the Second World War. You know, I think when this large-scale invasion broke out, uh, generations of British people uh, immediately recognized what Ukraine was faced with. 
So uh, the people of the United Kingdom, and I mean United Kingdom, England, Scotland, Wales, everybody who contributed back then in making sure that Europe survived. When Russia invaded Ukraine, I think immediately you saw the images of uh, bombings in London, you saw the images of uh, you know uh, everything that happened during the Second World War, and we we feel like you're our brothers and sisters, and I mean it. And it means a lot to us to have you as our one of our major allies. And this, you know, having allies like you guys is another reason why Russians understand that they will never win, and that's why Russians understand that Ukraine will win inevitably. Exactly. Images of people sheltering the metro brings everything back, you know, iconic images of Britain in, in World War II, um, as well, of course, all the Russian attacks on British soil, Litvinenko, Skripal. Uh, we recall all the things that Russia's done over the years. Well, we wish you a speedy victory and strength, and we're confident uh, in your victory. Thank you. Slava Ukraine and stand with Ukraine.